you know. But most people aren't happy. Yeah. They're not, dude. Absolutely. Like, and you know, and it's uh, the, and to your point, it's like, well, no, no. When I make my first million, I'll, you know, then I'll, yeah, I'll be happy. Yeah. It's like um, if you if you grew up broke and you make money, you buy the dumbest shit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the dumbest shit dumbest. imaginable. Yeah. You know what I mean? A bedazzled spinner. It's like, just fucking ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> like. What are you doing? But you know I, what I'm saying? Like, but I mean, you just need to look at hip-hop videos, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, we are... <laughs> I mean, new money is a disease. You know, it is. And I, look, I don't blame... That's why you got to make new money old. You know yeah. <laughs> okay, not that old. But I... <laughs> I mean, I still want to buy some dumb shit, but I mean, like, but you know, the biggest thing is like, you look at hip hop culture and it tells you that, okay. Like, I mean, I was just listening to it, which is so sad. Um, but he was like, uh, it's Drake successful, right? So he says, I just want to be successful. And he says, I want the money, the money and the cars, the cars and the clothes and the hoes, I suppose. Right. And it's like, yeah, all of us are kind of, <laughs> my rapping sucks, but, <laughs> but you know, like, it's all these things that we taught, especially when you don't come from privilege or you don't come from money. It's kind of like, these are the things that are going to fulfill me. And then you look at all these hip-hop artists and you're like, does little Wayne look happy to you? You know, little Wayne barely looks like he showers, let alone happy. You know? <laughs> Ooh, I'm just, everybody catching bullet holes. <laughs> I'm on a roll today. <laughs> Forgiveness. Nelson Mandela once said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Candace Mama talks about the importance of both holistic emotional experience and forgiveness. We must address our hurt and pain, hold ourselves accountable to our emotions before we can seek healing. Forgiveness is not simply acknowledging someone's apology. It is navigating a labyrinth of honesty, self-reflection and acceptance. To free yourself of the chains of resentment, you must forget what you cannot forgive and forgive what you cannot forget. This is the path to self-healing. Forgiveness does not make you weak. If anything, it is an attribute of the strong. Do not forgive because they deserve forgiveness, but instead forgive because you deserve peace. In this episode of The Matt Brown Show, Candace talks about her incredible experience of forgiving Eugene Decock, the former South African police colonel, torturer, and assassin, who, when active under the apartheid government, murdered her father. She shares insights into the power that comes with forgiveness and how you can use that power to be emotionally whole and true to who you are. So without further ado, enter Candace Mama. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. I'm going to have an incredible conversation, I'm sure, with this incredibly gorgeous, young and talented lady, Candace Mama. Welcome to the show. Oh my god! I love this. Can I start my day like this every day? This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Matt. It's such a cool setup. It really is fantastic. Well, it's uh, obviously a privilege and honor being here. Uh, we were talking just before we went live on air that uh, this man here, Justin Cohen, <laughs> author of Pitch to Win, is yeah. uh, one of your best friends. Yeah, I mean, how lucky am I, right? Um, or unlucky, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Just. Um, yeah, he's one of my best friends, and he's honestly one of the most incredible human beings mm. in the world. So I listened to his interview with you, mm. and I was like, yeah, he's actually quite smart. I, you know. Who, me, me or him? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I was like, I'm so excited to meet Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I know Justin too well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but he's incredible. He's yeah, incredible. He and he does actually give a lot of value mm -hmm. in his conversations. Hence, I kept him as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're guilty. It's like the whole peer group thing, right? So it's like, um, you know, if you're hanging out with 10 international best-selling authors, you'll probably be number 11. Yeah, well, I'm hoping, you know, because it is a lot of pressure to be friends mm. with Justin because he's such a, you know, go-getter and he's like so incredible at everything he does. And, mm. you know, to even like send him stuff to like review, I'm always like, oh, shit. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> You'd have to incorporate his perspective the whole time because <laughs> it's usually not wrong. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Mm. But the thing is, I'll fight it. I'll always fight it. And then I'll come back to it mm. when I've had time to, you know, cool off. And mm. I'll be like, it wasn't that bad. Mm. I think I could incorporate one or two things, everything. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, so. so let's talk about you. I mean, um, I know what we're going to dive into today, but what's the headline backstory about Candice Mama? Who are you Ooh, and what you're all about? Wow. That's a big question. Um, so I think I am someone who... I try to bring joy to people's lives. Um, I try to show people that they can live outside of trauma. They can live outside of that one narrative that sometimes we get so married and attached to. So that's really become my life mission, you know, or my life goal to really try and show people their best selves, you know, without, um, without being preachy or coming across as, this is my opinion, take it, you know, but really saying, okay, this is my experience, this is my story, and if it can spark uh, an idea in your mind that will allow you to view your life differently, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, I mean, and you do have a very interesting story, um, and uh, it begins with your father. Uh, why don't you walk us through what happened there? Yeah, so, I mean, ooh, it's a heavy story, Matt, are you ready? Always. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So when I was nine months, um, my father was brutally murdered by an apartheid assassin by the name of Eugene de Kock. And so that, of course, changed the trajectory of my whole life. Um, I grew up in a, you know, my mom was coping with having lost a husband, but I didn't grow up in the most supportive, you know, emotionally supportive environment. So by the time I was around 16, I had a lot of resentment. I was incredibly angry. I was lashing out. You know, I, I don't actually remember if I even knew what joy was, to be honest. You know, I'd laugh a lot, but I never really felt happiness. Um, so around 16, I'm lying in bed and I felt this pain in my chest and I was like, what is happening? So I went to my mom's room and I said, you know, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so she rushed me to the hospital and the doctor put me like under a gastroscopy and like under anesthesia. Um, and when I woke up, he said, you know, you weren't having a heart attack, but he was like, but the stress symptoms in your body are so severe that I've never seen this in my years of experience and you're only 16. So at that point, you know, the words I heard were you dying. And to be honest, I was pretty okay with it. I was like, okay, well, if I'm dying, I'm dying. It's not a big deal. And so a couple of weeks, months later, you know, I think I was always a competitive athlete. So I was about to run and I saw like this family playing and I just thought, you know, I've never experienced joy. Like, I don't know what happiness feels like. And I'm like, and if I'm going to die, I want to at least try and experience what this happiness thing is. And so I started taking a journey to 
finding what made me happy, finding what brought me joy, and also having to let go of a lot of things that held me down and didn't, you know, contribute to my joy. And only around the age of 18, I thought, hey, wait a minute, I think I'm feeling happiness. I think, you know, I'm actually a cool, like I'm cool right now. And um, an article about Eugene had come up because prior to that, you know, every time Eugene would even be mentioned in the news, whether he was applying for parole or I'd see, you know, someone covering his story, I'd get severe palpitations. I would break out into a sweat and it would affect me for days on end, you know, because I'd just be replaying him in my mind. And once around 18, 19, I saw an article and I was like, hey, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. I didn't react. And then I thought it was a fluke. So I was like, okay, it's fine. And then a few months later, I went out of my way to like really Google him and I still felt nothing. I didn't feel anger. I didn't feel resentment. And that's when I realized that I had actually managed to forgive this person. However, um, I'd never thought I'd actually meet him. So when I was 23, um, I got home and my mom says, I got a call from the national prosecuting authorities and they want to know if you want to meet Eugene. And for the first time, I was like, wait. Was that an illusion? Did I forgive him? How am I going to react? But immediately I said yes, because I knew if I didn't see him, I'd always question myself for the rest of my life. So there we went um, a couple of weeks later. You know, my older brother was like, I'm not sure if I want to do this. You know, my mom was like, well, I'm going to go if someone is going. So eventually on the day, my brother was like, I'm coming. So it was me, my younger brothers from my stepdad, uh, my older brother and my grandfather and my mom. So there we go to Kosimampura prison in Pretoria. And they counsel us. We get there. They counsel us. You know, there was a counselor, a priest, um, the dean of the prison. And they're like, you know, you about to meet this man. You know, if it ever gets overwhelming, please let us know, you know, and that kind of thing. And then they gave us tea and like scones. And they sat us down, right? And it's like, it was very strange because it felt like you were just attending like a boardroom meeting and it was a boardroom setup. So the chairs were, you know, um, put in this rectangular uh, shape. And so the furthest point was my mom. Then it was my grandfather from my dad's side. Um, and then it was my older brother, my younger brother, myself. And then next to me, it was going to be, um, it was the priest. And then there was an empty chair, like um, just opposite me. And that was going to be for Eugene. So I thought, okay, cool, you know, they're going to give us a grand announcement when this man walks in. So we're all having conversations amongst ourselves. And then I was the first to turn around and I was like, oh, shit, here he is. You know, And I was just shocked. I was like, whoa, you know. And so the priest was like, oh, you know, um, here's Eugene, everyone. So he made the announcement. And so that is when our encounter began. Um and so my mom started with the questions because I literally couldn't say anything. And my mom was like, you know, what happened to my husband? So Eugene broke it down and he said, you know, um, it was an ambush. We had an Ascari in the camp. So an Ascari is a turncoat um, that we placed in the camp. And we needed, you know, young, capable people to be in the vehicle. And my dad was a very skilled driver. So he was going to be the designated driver to get into Nosprey and out. And so Eugene's team were actually waiting for the vehicle. So they had like um, a white car that was going to show them that the car behind them was going to be my dad's car. So as this car drove past um, the bridge, then Eugene and his team started firing at the car, um, at my dad's car. So when Eugene saw that the car wasn't coming to a stop, he ran down the Nelspray Bridge and he emptied out his magazine cartridge on my father. And when he still saw signs of life in the vehicle, he doused them all in fuel and then he set them alight. 
So after that, you know, they waited for the flames to burn out. And while they were waiting, they actually had a braai a couple of minutes, like a couple of, you know, kilometers away where they could still see, you know, the car burning out. And so Eugene explained all of this to us and it was the first time we actually knew what had happened. Um, and then my mom said, second, you know, question is, why my husband? And I think it was for the first time I actually felt incredible pain in the encounter. And he said, no reason. So I was like, whoa. So my dad died for no reason, you know. So the encounter, like it went on. And then my mom said, you know, I forgive you, Eugene. And then my older brother and my grandfather and my younger brother is like, I'm just here because I don't want to be at school. And then it got to me. And I looked at Eugene and I said, you know, Eugene, I want to say I forgive you. But before I do, I want to ask you one thing. And he said, okay, what's that? And I said, do you forgive yourself? And for the first time in the encounter, he went from, you know, just being the stoic person and he looked away, he was uncomfortable and he muttered something and he kept quiet. So I looked at him and I said, you still haven't answered my question. And then he looked back up at me and he said, you know, every time a family comes, that's one question I hope they never ask me. And today you've asked me. And he looked away and he wiped the side of his eye. He dabbed the side of his eye and he looked back at me and he said, when you've done the things I've done, how do you forgive yourself? So in that moment, I just broke down. I just started crying. And it wasn't so much for what I had lost, but for the first time, I actually saw a human being in front of me. And I thought to myself, you know, had I been in his position, firstly, I can't say if I, I would have turned out any better and how much pain he must have been carrying, you know. So the encounter ended and I was the first to get up. So I got up and I went around to him and I said, you know, Eugene, would you mind if I gave you a hug? And he looked at me a little shocked and he got up and then he hugged me and he said, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And your father would have been so proud of the woman you've become. So then that was the end of that encounter. And yeah, so that has been my life with, you know, forgiveness and the lot. Crazy. There's so much to get into there. Um but firstly, what an incredible story. I don't think, you know, the average, I can only speak for myself, but like, <clears throat> so I have like a strange relationships with kind of like a lot of my family because just, that's just how things plan out, you know, sometimes. And, um, I haven't forgiven them in the way that you have, but your scenario is like someone has taken from you. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, and this is the, the paradigm shift that I really want to get into. But there's so much I want to explore. Going back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, why did they want to introduce you to Eugene? What was their thinking there? Was it about this whole forgiveness healing opportunity and for you to meet this guy who took your father? So this was not actually a TRC initiative. This was uh, the National Prosecuting Authorities. Uh. So this was actually a part of a program where it was um, the Perpetrator Victim Program. And it was to try and bring people closure. You know, so for many people, you know, we had, I mean, you could call it a privilege of actually burying my dad's body. So we knew where it was. You know, we knew who had done it. Many people did not know who had done it. And the information was only coming out later. So it was just about, you know, facilitating some sort of healing, some sort of closure process. Um, so it had been running for a couple of years by the time they'd reached out to my family. Yeah. And what was the conversation internally within your family at the time? Was it, I mean, I'm sure there must have been some resistance to meeting him at all. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't something that 
any one of us took lightly, you know. Um, and my family is very strange in the way we deal with conflict or grief or anything. We, we kind of start just making jokes about things, you know, and we really just make it like, okay, this is not going to affect me, you know. So if I can laugh about it, it doesn't impact me. But the biggest issue with that is, you know, when it does get serious, you know, none of us actually know how to deal with it because like, okay, this is really happening. So what are we going to do? And like I said, um, like my older brother dealt with it in avoidance. He just didn't want to speak about it. He was like, well, we've moved past it. It doesn't matter. And I mean, he was four when my father passed away. So he has some sort of memory with my father. Um, and then my mom was very much like, well, my life has moved on, you know, so I don't know, but I'll just go with whoever wants to go. And my grandfather from my dad's side, he's not a part of our life, really. So we just told him that this is what's going to happen. Do you really do you want to come? Um, because this was your son, you know, um, and he was just like, well, you know, if I can support you guys in that way, you know, then I'll come. So in, inside the family, it was quite a tense period. But I think in some ways, you know, I think we discussed it one or two times and everyone was just kind of like, well, let's just wait for the day to come, you know, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So what was your initial reaction to this? Because I imagine if you if you were so young when your father was taken from you, yeah. um, you kind of stitched together stories and things like that, but you don't really have an, an idea. That's the first thing, which is different for you. So when you're with your older brother being four, he had something, right? So But you didn't have anything. So I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. But then... Um, what happens, I imagine, in those sorts of situations, it's like, well, you, you also haven't met Eugene, right? So your brain, like, creates a monster, this guy who did this thing. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and your imagination, I imagine, runs with you at times, even just the thought of, well, do I want to meet this guy? I mean, can you imagine? Do you know what I'm saying? I could, can't imagine that. Yeah. I mean, how did you approach getting over this kind of monster idea in your head because were you a pro were you a protagonist in meeting eugene or you know like how to walk us through the exact steps that you took to overcome the initial like fuck that i'm not gonna meet this guy absolutely um i think that's a really good question because i think one part i actually did leave out in the initial story um is so when i was nine my mom bought a book called into the heart of darkness by jock poe and uh so she would always like send me to get this book whenever we'd have guests and the reaction was always just so crazy to me because people would cry I'd hear screaming but she'd always send me out of the room so one day I was like but I want to know like what is getting people so riled up and so one day I was just like playing outside the door and 
like I heard my mom saying, you know, to the person, you know, this is the page um, you should turn to. And again, a scream came out and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, you know. And But I'd overheard the conversation that my dad was in this book. So I knew like pretty much what I'd patched together, that my dad was in the book, the person who killed him, you know, and so on and so forth. So one day when my mom had left me home alone, I thought, I'm going to go look at what everyone was looking at. So I went, I turned to the page and the only picture was my dad's burned body clutching a steering wheel. So for me, it started really forming, you know, what had happened um, in my own mind. And so I think that created to heightening the trauma in a lot of ways, because I think up until around eight, nine, I was okay. Like I was an okay child. You know, I understood that I didn't have a father and I understood that I was missing something, but that was pretty much okay with me. But then when I saw that, it was almost like the love trauma because I couldn't tell my mom, like I just couldn't because I was like, she's going to hit me and, you know, I wasn't supposed to look and how I'm like, you know, and even in growing up, my mom never spoke about my dad that much. You know, it was just kind of like, oh, well, he died kind of thing. Um, so it was really me piecing together these things and from other people of saying, oh, this is the kind of person your father was. And, you know, when you were born, it was like you guys gave him a reason to love my, uh, my older brother and I and how he'd walk around the streets and parade us and be like, these are my kids, you know. And so for me, I think the both advantage and disadvantage is I got to create who my father was. I didn't get to see his flaws. I didn't get to see the aspects of him that everyone else got to see. So I had this idealized, you know, version. And and when you have that, you can also create the life that could have been, right? You can say, I could have been this and my life could have been that. And so you get to create this. So it becomes very difficult whereby you have to now meet the person who's taken away this, you know, vision from you and this person is also a monster right like i mean when you read about eugene or you google him prime evil assassin of the state you know he is very dehumanized even in media and in literature so i went in with that understanding that this man has no emotional capacity this man is a monster this man has no sense of human attachment or connection and so for me seeing that is what really broke me down and i think you know, going in, I'd love to say, you know, I had no bias as to how I was going to react. But the truth is, I went in with a lot of bias. I thought, you know, I was going to walk in, I was going to hear what he had to say, and I was going to walk out unfazed, you know, like, okay, whatever, you know, this is not going to impact me. But I really did not think I'd have any sort of emotional feelings towards this person, you know, so it did, it was a very challenging time, because even after the encounter, I think I was actually more... I was more in an emotional state after we met because I was so confused. You know, I, I remember getting into the car and just thinking, what just happened? Did I just hug the man that killed my father? Did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? You know, was he deceiving us? I mean, this was a, a man who was so well-trained, you know, was he manipulating our emotions? You know, so I had to kind of get my own basis of, my feelings. And so I spoke to um, the head of the National Prosecuting Authorities and I said, how do these like encounters go? Like what kind of a human being is he? And, you know, she gave me some stories that I was like, okay, shoot. Okay. I don't feel like I was being duped. My emotions were valid and I did do the right thing. What kind of um, stories were shared with you around that? Because I would, I would, I suppose my initial reaction would be why, why is this happening? You know, and I guess I get that the NPA understand that yeah. thing, right? So having an opportunity to to redress and stuff like that, yeah. and to heal and what have you. But what is his motivation? Because, I mean, do you have any insight into you know? Because obviously we all change, and you know, he obviously fucked up, did some really bad things, right? Yeah. Um, but what were his motivations? Were you ever briefed on what those were? 
Yeah. Or did he talk to you about what those things were? Yeah, I mean, going in, I actually thought he was up for parole. I thought, you know, he needed as many sympathy votes as he could get for parole, um, only to find that he had actually been denied parole. So um, the prospect of parole was not on the table for him at that time. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. So he doesn't want parole. So like, what else is this? And then I found out that he had actually been working with the MPA to locate bodies, to help families get closure, to meet families, you know, and um, because he had been either directly a part of so many of the missions or indirectly, um, it was just a thing that he wanted to do, you know, he wanted to be a part of. And one of the stories that was actually shared with me was um, another family went to go see him. And this woman came in and, and like when he came in, you know, she started throwing he, her coffee mug at him and a saucer and everything she could find really. And of course the guards tried to hold her back and he, you know, he actually held the guards back and he said, you know, let her do what she needs to do to heal her trauma. Mm. You know, there's nothing she can do to me mm. that can, you know, fix what I've done. Mm. You know, so it was like that level of understanding almost, you know, that got to me and I was like, okay, mm. so this man is not someone who is, you know, like a Francois Niveau who's just like, you know, now found God and he wants, you know, mm. to seek, you know, forgiveness. But this is someone who's come to the terms and realization with what he's done. And I think for me, the most challenging part was, you know, when you realize how indoctrinated this, and I'm not justifying anything Eugene did, but he grew up in the system of indoctrination, right? And he does all these acts according to this righteous belief system. And then all of a sudden, a time comes when people are like, oh, by the way, what you believed is incorrect. So I can't even imagine how that would break me as a person because am I just a bad person? Am I just evil? Am I just cruel? Because now all those actions no longer have any sort of, you know, like everyone, you went from being celebrated and being this decorated soldier under the apartheid regime to all of a sudden now it's like what you did was, no, it was wrong. You know, so it is a little tricky. Yeah. What did you learn about overcoming trauma? So, because, I mean, there's obviously different kinds. I mean, Absolutely. there's murder, there's rape, there's... Whatever it, whatever you decide that is for you, it's all personal. It's all very unique. It's context dependent. But many times we just don't care to deal with resentment ever. It's much easier just to put your head in the sand and and pretend. It's much be easier to alienate than it is to confront and grow in the, in that process. Where does one start to overcome trauma, like yeah. the one that you experienced? You know, I think for me, you know, it was really when I realized that it's a very personal journey, right? It is about me in many ways. So I think when the story first made media news and everyone was like, oh, she's a saint. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not a saint. <laughs> I'm like, I got dumped last week. Trust me, I'm not a saint. Um, so, you know, so like for me, it was just really getting people to understand that it was something I had to do. You know, it wasn't about Eugene. It wasn't about trying to liberate him or give him any sort of, you know, feelings of like okay what i've done i can now sleep better at night or live better for me it was you're sorry why why did you feel that way because you, you had a choice yeah and you know your your circumstances were very extenuating yeah they were very traumatic and they didn't just affect you it's not yeah. like a breakup well Absolutely. he cheated on me and now like i hate hate him you must die yeah. this was like it affected your whole family <laughs> I didn't say you, must die. you know what i'm God. saying <laughs> <laughs> But um, but it affected not just you, it affected Absolutely. like everyone that you care about and more broadly the community that, you know, yeah, that absolutely. you come from. So 
It's way more pronounced. So you actually yeah. had a choice. Why did you feel Absolutely. that you needed to do this thing at all? I like for me, I realized that if I hold on to this resentment, I can't move forward. You know, because I think what we don't realize with trauma and resentment is it colors the way you view the world, whether you want it to or you don't, whether it's subconscious or not. It is you walk through the world with your pain. You know, and you'd want to believe that, oh, I'm actually so unbiased. You know, I don't, I don't live in a pain bubble. I don't make decisions based on my trauma, but you do. And it is something that I had to come to terms with and say, everything about my life is like, you know, it's filled with trauma. Every decision I make is from a trauma basis. And so I needed to heal that part of myself and say, I'm forgiving for me. And I think that's the hardest concept for people to get behind. But when you forgive someone, you're doing it for yourself. It is so that you don't get plagued by those memories. You don't get plagued by that, you know, moment again and again, because it's almost like repeats a trauma. Because what happens is we go through these moments, right? So that's the first impact. But then every time you think about that thing, or every time you see that person, it triggers you again and again and again. And so in order for you to move forward is you just need to take away the emotional response you have to that incident, you know, or to numb down the emotional response you have to that incident. So because we can never forget what's happened to us. It's a huge part of who we are. But you don't need to let it define you. So for me, it was it. I had to make the choice to. It's almost like what Nelson Mandela said, without sounding like a fortune cookie. But um, you know, when he said, you know, um, anger is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. You know, and it is. You do have to just suck out that emotional venom in your own system so that you can live a more productive life and you can still move forward in life without that one person being imprisoned to that one person. You know, so for me, yes, in many ways it may have been a choice, but I I think I had to because I don't think I would have been here today if it, if I didn't take that choice. What would you say to someone that says um or who has a who is battling to to just make that choice? So when you say something like, you know, well, I did it for me, not for anyone else, and they're going, fuck that, I'm too hurt, you know, and they're holding on to things, um, which is ironic because then you're the one that's actually just imprisoning yourself, to yeah. your point, you know, you're holding on to these resentments, and then they become a pattern of behavior, Absolutely. right, and a, kind of like a lens that you're looking at everyone and everything through. It's like going back to the relationship thing. If you got, if you got cheated on, right, yeah. now suddenly all men are bad. Oh, 100. You know what I'm saying? And it's funny because you find that they get into the same kind of relationships over and over again because it's, I don't know, it's a funny thing subconsciously yeah. that we that we do to ourselves. But what do you say to someone that's stuck on, that is holding on to resentment and cannot see a way to forgive? You know, I think first the notion I try and at least get rid of, you know, in my conversational narrative is, you know, I don't, I mean, with the self-help movement, when it really became a booming thing with the secret and all these things, there, there was a huge thing about like, this is positive emotion and this is negative emotion and you can't feel anything else, you know, you've got to constantly be in this positive frame of mind. And that's not the human experience, you know, and I think for us as human beings on this journey, every emotion serves a purpose, you know, and it's about what is that, like, what is that emotional purpose that that emotion is giving you? And I think when you start becoming accountable to yourself and you start telling yourself the truth, because, you know, like anger and resentment, right, there is a purpose they serve. Sometimes they can actually serve as fuel 
And as our drivers to move forward and be like, I will never be like my father. So I will always hold this resentment to remind myself, right? But I feel like you do need to experience that emotion. You need to experience the anger. I do not jump from resentment to forgiveness. You know, you need to experience the stages of grief. You need to experience the stages of anger. And then you need to release them, you know. So it's not about running away from the emotion, but it's about addressing and facing the situation. Because I think... What I have at least come to find is people don't want to face what's really bugging them, right? So even that person that broke your heart, you really don't want to face the situation. You don't want to address it. You don't want to, you know, come to terms with what had happened. Because if you just say, I'm a victim to this, if them, you know, like I'm a victim and they can go to hell and I'm just going to move forward in my life. You fail to sit back and be like, actually, you know, this happened to me. This person really messed me up and it had nothing to do with me. It was all about them, you know, and until we can really sit down with ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to our emotions, I don't think we can even entertain the thought of forgiveness, you know, and only after we've held ourselves accountable, we've addressed our hurt, we've addressed our pain, can we then seek the path of forgiveness? Yeah, it's a spiritual solution to practical real world problems. And that's, that's actually what we're talking about here. Um, so have you read, um, what's that book? Um, he's that com comedic guy, the guy in recovery, the English dude. What's his name? I've got, I've gone blank. Just pass my laptop here. Yeah? I'll get it up in a second. Do you know the guy who was in Get Him to the Greek? Ra Russell, Russell Brand, not Richard Branson. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, Rich, Richard, I was like, Richard Branson's in recovery. <laughs> Surprise, news alert. <laughs> yeah, bring it up. Yeah. Cool. So, but I, I want to share this process because I'm, I've, I've actually started doing this because I'm in recovery. And, um, and so the 12 steps is somewhat, a lot of people be familiar with for like alcoholics and stuff. And then you've got NA as well which is another one. And um, anyway, so I got into this book called, um, uh, it's called Recovery by Russell Brand. <laughs> and so I just want to share this process and, and kind of see how this, how this ties back to what you went through. So it's a really interesting take on, on resentment and how you deal with things. And so what you're supposed to do is make a list of everyone you knew from, from the age of like zero to your current age right so how old are you know i'm 27 27 okay so i'm 40 this year can you fucking Ooh, believe that i shit? cannot believe it you oh, are no. very good 40 well thank you done, so Max. much thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so, so from like zero to five five to ten ten to fifteen fifteen twenty etc all the way up to the current age you basically list everyone that you knew okay wow. so you don't miss anyone okay. um, and then the idea is that you then say okay who do i resent why do i resent them and then, then you go into two things. How does, how does this affect me? And you look at things like pride. So what you think about yourself, mm -hmm. self esteem, what mm -hmm. you think about yourself. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, personal relations, the script that you give others, sexual relations, ambitions, security, mm -hmm. what you need to survive, and then finances, money and stuff like that. And then you, and then once you go through that whole thing, you're writing everything down. It's okay. Because you're not in some, like in some instances, you're not going to, it's not going to use, it's not going to affect all those things, yeah. but it may affect two or three. Absolutely. And then you, then you look at what you did in that process. And that was, that's where you really start to get into, um, what drives you as a human being, because that's, and you know, what I find interesting about this, it's about, they call them gifts of recovery okay. where, 
when you go through a process like forgiveness, right? In other words, you can't get to forgiveness unless you understand exactly how something that happened to you, whether you were seven years old or 27 years old or 40, whatever the case is. But if you don't really get into how it affects you and what you did in the process, right? So for instance, where did you make a mistake? You know, like where were you selfish? Where were you dishonest? with yourself and with others, Absolutely. you know, and be getting to the truth mm-hmm. because that's where you find perspective, right? Absolutely. And I actually like that idea of dealing with life because I think, you know, sometimes we get so caught in the narrative of, especially, you know, when it's an extreme situation, such as my case, um, it becomes like there's a very clear villain and there's a very clear, you know, good guy kind of thing. So it's, people can, people almost support that. So it's like, okay, if you're going to live your life in pain and resentment, like society will pretty much support that narrative, right? But it's about saying, okay, but I don't want to, you know, so how is this impacting me? And how much responsibility am I going to take? So I I can't take responsibility over Eugene's actions, right? But I can take responsibility over how am I going to live from this point forward? Am I going to say my dad died in vain? Or am I going to say, you know what, actually, I want to, he died so that I could live a better life. So am I going to take that opportunity? You know, and it really is about just dealing with your own emotional body. Because like you said, I think the beauty of that is really saying, how is this impacting me in all these arenas of my life, right? Because all of us walk into, I love it when people think they walk into relationships and like, you know, tethered and yeah. I'm baggage free. I'm uh, like, yeah, okay. So pure. <laughs> I'm so pure. I was in a so nunnery. <laughs> Nothing's and I'm like, oh. ever gone wrong in a relationship for me. <laughs> um, you, you don't look like it has, Matt. I have to be honest. Um, you look like you, you know. <laughs> You've done all the right things. It's the uh, other person. Okay. It's the other person. Um, <laughs> Ask this lot, they know. <laughs> no, but I think like, you know, even, even right now, right? So even though I'm in this industry where I help people forgive, there's still certain traumas I still carry into certain, you know, relationships, especially I think our closest intimate partners actually get the brunt of who we are, you know, because it's the brunt of our wounding. And this is the person who's supposed to, you know, see all of you and accept all of you, right? And you don't even see and accept all of you, but you've got this very high expectation on someone else to love me as I am. And then you look in the mirror and you don't love you as you are, you know, so it's a bit hypocritical, right? So it's just about addressing your own, um, where you went wrong and what, you know, how much of this you gave away to someone else, you know, how much of your happiness you gave away to someone else, how much of, you know, um, whatever it is, your anger, your time, your resentment, your thinking um, that you gave away. And even though you can be like, you know, I was a perfect person in this union and this person is just an asshole, then well, stop choosing assholes, you know. So that becomes the real thing and people don't love that, <laughs> you know. No, they hate the truth. Oh, yeah. Jeez. But it sucks. I I'm don't even like the tell truth a lot people, of the time. I'm like, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, but people don't want the truth. Absolutely. You know, and, and that, you know, it's funny because there's no uh, handbook for this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like you're born and then life happens. And most of the time it's shit. You know, it's most legit. It's like, Absolutely. to your point, you spent up until you were 16, you were pretty much miserable, right? Absolutely. And by the way, that's, that applies to so many people in so many different aspects. And it's like, it's in the pursuit of happiness because you, it's not the destination, it's the process of getting there that matters. Mm-hmm. And what we don't have is a process to deal with life. And so what we become is just passengers. We become 
um, at effect and never at cause. Do you know what I mean? And Absolutely. so, and, and to your point, we just don't get over things that happen to us. We yeah. would rather park them and not deal with it yeah. and not be honest with ourselves more than w- with others, right? Yeah. Although that is a very important thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but we don't have a process and that's why that uh, Russell Brand process, it's, it's, People seem to think that, you know, if you have, if you're an addict or if you have a disease of addiction, that that process doesn't apply to you. Mm. But when you think more broadly about all the different kinds of addiction that you have, it's technology, it's sex, it's food, it's um, drugs, alcohol, which are the ones that are most popularized. Mm. But there's like 60 different kinds of addiction, right? So it's such a prominent thing. And people aren't aware of this stuff. But the first step is becoming self-aware. That, that this is something that I need to deal with. Yeah, and I think because of the society we live in or the culture or, you know, social media, um, we're not taught to lean into our pain. You know, we're supposed to run away from it and seek this euphoric happiness. Like, I mean, the pursuit of happiness is probably the biggest pursuit in life, right? We're chasing this thing like we're going to get to this point and it's going to be like, oh, you know, I'm happy forever. It's marriage and kids, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> And then you get them and you're like, you know what, sometimes you, I mean, I'm not married and I don't have kids, but I can assume <laughs> in my extensive experience um, <laughs> that, you know, there are times that you'll wake up next to your partner and you'll be like, is this the best I could do? You know, <laughs> in a non-offensive way. <laughs> she, you shut up. <laughs> She's that, speaking that the came truth. out harsher than I intended it to. But that's, but, I mean, that's what Chris was telling us the other day, right? <laughs> he woke up next to his chick and he, he was like, this is the best I can do. No, but like, I mean, and in fairness, like, I mean, my partner probably, like, if I had one right now, but that's why I don't have one because I'm always looking at them like, is this the best I can do? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I I don't exactly wake up looking the way I look now, right? And we like to pretend like we do. Like it's like Beyonce even released the song, I woke up like this. First of all, you're lying. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's the thing. So we chase this huge pinnacle that, okay, once I get the husband, once I get the kids, once I get the career, once I get the money. And, and then it's, it becomes a cycle because then you realize that, oh, shucks, I've got all of these things. But firstly, this person is human. They mess up. My career is what it is now. I can't really add more to it. Um, and so we stop. That's when I think sometimes addiction tends to seep in, right? Like to the really like people in top tier society who've achieved all these great things. And you're like, but why are you so miserable? And it's like, I thought this is what happiness is supposed to be like. You know, we forget that it's the everydays. It's that like two minute music montage in a movie. You know, it's those everyday moments that you need to seek your own internal happiness and validation. And what makes me tick? I mean, it surprises me how many people don't know what makes them happy. You know, and it's like, okay, so you don't know, but you expect Bob to know, like, you know, and you're like, Bob is my happiness. And you're like, no, he is not. (laughs) Bob is the community's happiness. Um, So, you know, so it becomes that big issue whereby you need to really spend time because, I mean, you have the most conversations with yourself. Mm. And I mean, I had to even check this about myself. I'm like, damn. This chick in my head is a bitch. Like she needs to really like evacuate the building, you know, because it's like the things we say to ourselves, it, like you would never say that to someone, but you look in the mirror and you're like, damn, my eyes are big as hell, <laughs> you know, which they are. But I mean, that's not the point, <laughs> you know, but like we break ourselves down so much and then we wonder why our external lives aren't, you know, exactly the greatest 
you know. But most people aren't happy. Yeah. They're not, dude. Absolutely. Like, and you know, and it's uh, the, but and to your point, it's like, well, no, no. When I make my first million, I'll, you know, then I'll, yeah, I'll be happy. Yeah. It's like, um, if you if you grew up broke and you make money, you buy the dumbest shit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the dumbest shit dumbest. imaginable. Yeah. You know what I mean? A bedazzled spinner. It's like, just fucking ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's... Like, what are you doing? But, you know what I'm saying? Like, but I mean, you just need to look at hip-hop videos, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, we are... I mean, new money is a disease. You know, it is. And I, look, I don't blame... That's my... why you got to make new money old. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, not that old. But I... <laughs> I mean, I still want to buy some dumb shit, but... I mean, like... But, you know, the biggest thing is, like, you look at hip-hop culture, and it tells you that, okay. Like, I mean, I was just listening to it, which is so sad. Um, but he was like, uh, it's Drake successful, right? So he says, I just want to be successful. And he says, I want the money, the money and the cars, the cars and the clothes, and the hoes, I suppose, right? And it's like, yeah, all of us are kind of... <laughs> my rapping sucks. But, <laughs> but, you know, like... It's all these things that we taught, especially when you don't come from privilege or you don't come from money. It's kind of like, these are the things that are going to fulfill me. And then you look at all these hip-hop artists and you're like, does little Wayne look happy to you? You know, little Wayne barely looks like he showers, let alone happy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, I'm just, everybody catching bullet holes. <laughs> I'm on a roll today. <laughs> What did you say? <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Oh, look at oh, him. Oh, there he is. Yeah, look at him. What That's, a beautiful uh, chocolate man. He's, yeah. <laughs> Said no woman ever. He's pretty. <laughs> he's certainly pretty. Yeah. He, Role mean, model, if, really. <laughs> Six foot, seven if, foot. No, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. So, Jeez. It's so sad, but I mean, I do get, I do get the attraction of new money. I've got to be honest, you know. So, like, I mean, you do have to buy some dumb shit. Just know when to stop, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and how how dumb does it get? But the reason you know? why you're doing that is because oh, yeah. it's that pursuit of something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Inside of inside of yourself, a connection to something greater than yourself, and so mm. we tend to pursue relationships because you want you think that oh well if i'm in a relationship with this person that's you know they're going to make me happy but that's a fuck up by the way because i can tell you what one thing i've learned about marriage is that you can never make your wife happy like ever like you like legit like you can only get it so far and also most importantly it's not your problem it shouldn't be your fucking problem it's wrong it's a false it's a a false idiom, I guess, when it comes to the concept of marriage, where you know your responsibility as a partner is to make your wife happy, or vice versa, and that's not the point. Your actual job is to present yourself as happy. <laughs> you just because need to look as happy as possible, so that they don't freak out. Well, you know? but it's like it? it's like you can't make someone else happy you can't it's not it's a fuck up it's a stupid thing to try and pursue because you will only wind up being miserable and angry and bitter and disappointed and so forth and so it's a thing where you need to work on yourself and present yourself as happy because when you both present yourself as as happy then that's when magic happens that's when you really connect absolutely because if you start to blame say hang on you you know you didn't do that thing you know you didn't do that thing 
But you're yeah. so right. And actually, Will Smith spoke to this um, in one of his videos. And he was just saying, you know, one day he got home to his wife and he said, you know, I quit. And the wife was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, I quit trying to make you happy because that's just not my job anymore. So if you're going to be miserable in this house, I'm still going to go out there and be happy and you can figure your life out, you know? And I think that is... I love that <laughs> figure your, wife, figure your life, life out. out. Do it. <laughs> Exactly. Don't come back until you're yeah. done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you have to live on that side and me on this side, that's what we got to do. But it's so true, though, right? We're constantly looking and searching. But you know what, Matt? I'm actually finding that a lot of us don't love ourselves. And that's our biggest issue, right? We never feel like we're enough. We never feel like, you know, we're accomplishing enough. We're worthy. We, you know, we, we search for, um, like we search for those qualities mm. that, oh, like he thinks I'm all these things. And so I want him. But he's only going to think those things for like a second until he gets to know you. And he's going to be like, okay, I'm kind of tired of always having to tell you how worthy you are, you know. And sometimes we get partners that are like, if I get the most attractive dude or I get the most successful, I get this. It's a direct reflection on me. And it isn't, you know. I mean, he yes, he found you attractive, but it can't be your validating point, you know. And it's from that point of self-love when we, you begin to love yourself and you be, begin to fill yourself up from within that you start needing less things and less, you know, people. Because I don't think you attract or the right caliber of people stay in your life if you have that mindset constantly of like, you know, I need this person to do this for me and I need this from this person and I need this person to constantly tell me I'm attractive and I need this, right? Which in some ways is social media. I mean, you can see a cry for help on social media, right? Yeah. So you see like a girl, pretty girl, she's like, you know, she goes from being fully dressed all of a sudden like it's just bikini pictures. And you're like, mm -hmm. we know what you're doing, Tina. Mm -hmm. Like Bob left, didn't he? You know, so... <laughs> Who is this person? I know who is Bob. She's, like, she's definitely speaking from the real people. These are real people. Let's get Tina up on the screen. Join the conversation. Um, Let's live podcast this. But that's what it is, right? Mm. It, when we constantly need things and that, you know, those stupid expenses that we have or putting ourselves into debt because we think that mm. car is going to make us happy or that house is going to make us happy or that person is going to make us happy. Mm. And then we end up like depressed and miserable because none of it does mm. because you don't know how to make yourself happy. But the, I, but again, I would say that it goes back to forgiveness, right? So, so I said to my wife the other day, I was like, check this out because I couldn't fit into a pair of jeans like I, that I wore like, you know, from like two, three years ago or whatever. And then, I, and I was like, yeah, but guess what? I love it. <laughs> I dig me a lot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, she, and she was like, yeah, but you know, fuck, whatever. And I was like, yeah, but the thing is, if you can't love yourself when you're fat, that for me is a great thing. It's like, you know, if you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, I'm a chubby little pork chop, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, there's more, like I there's and more I, need and to love. I dig pork chops. <laughs> you know what I mean? The way they taste, the way they look, like they're who, just who does awesome. Not love who a doesn't pork love chop? pork? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you, you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Non-religious factors. But yeah, yeah, but outside of that, yeah. you know, Everyone pork is pork. awesome. We love pork. You know what I mean? <laughs> But yeah. um, but I mean it's a thing, and so but the, but it's so easy to go. I'm fat. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. You know, and I'm not good enough and I really need oh, to yeah. get it. You know what I mean? Like you just beat yourself up and whatever. And so ultimately, you're the one that costs yourself your own happiness. Yeah. And so you just got to say, well, this is who I am today, right? I believe that that change is possible and that I can become an eight-pack legend. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then that's, and that's fine. But you don't need to honk on the point around, well… Yeah. I resent myself for getting into this situation in the first place. You know what I mean? And, I, and I'm stuck here forever. Yeah. And now this, and now, uh, you know, no one's going to respect me. And like, <sighs> I'm, I'm never going to the beach again and whatever. And you know, yeah, your mind latches onto that shit. Yeah. So it is about just forgiving yourself every single day, right? Yeah. But isn't that relationships? That's a relationship with yourself. That's a relationship with a partner. I mean, life is constant forgiveness. You know, you've, it's just a constant state of having to forgive people. And sometimes the person you love the most will piss you off the most. And it's like, am I going to drag this out for like the next week and make my life miserable for the next week to try and punish this person? When you realize that you're actually punishing yourself. You know, if you go into silent treatment, guess what? Like you're the one not speaking. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go about my life. Like when you're ready to open your mouth, you'll talk. But I'm going to be happy, you know. And so it's like these weird narratives. And I mean, who said you have to be skinny? to be attractive like who came up with this absurd notion you know that this is how you look to be attractive to be accepted in society to you know be of worth this is how you've got to look and we tell ourselves these things you know you look in the mirror and you're like uh when did i gain this you're like because i ate and i was happy eating okay and i like wine okay <laughs> so is it like am i gonna sacrifice wine or six pack fuck the six pack you know <laughs> round of applause for that one <laughs> Yeah. Trevor, you're listening. <laughs> Check at his face. He's like grinning ear to ear. It's like he can't wait. He's like, that's my philosophy. <laughs> Wisest thing she's ever said. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear what Trevor sounds? Trevor, please come, say Trevor, something. Come speak in the mic here, buddy. You must just <laughs> listen to this. Just listen to this. I'm so excited. You this man's no born idea, for Trevor. entertainment. Here we go. Ready? Hello, Candace. How are you Hello, doing, darling? <laughs> Hello. Are you entertained? <laughs> How could I not be with that voice? Well, that's why I'm working here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What a voice. I love it. It's crazy. Eh? Yeah. That's talent, oh, right? You just there. speak like that just all the time. It's not even put on. Oh man, isn't that a isn't that a talent? Way I would be killing dudes left, right, and center with that voice. Like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) I will be. I will be. Wow, (laughs) I want to pick up on something that you said um, about figuring out what makes you happy because I think that's that's kind of a key piece to this whole puzzle. But forgiveness is a very big part of that. Um, so we know that most people aren't happy. Like a lot of people don't know how to work out what that thing is. What is your experience in discovering either a passion or something that you feel that can really light you up? You know what I mean? That you can talk and, in other words, speak your truth about and be authentic about and that you can use to build a business and a personal brand like what you've done. What's the kind of process? What have you learned about finding the thing that makes you happy? You know, I think this is going to be something that isn't popular with most people, but I think spend time with yourself, you know, and when I say that, I don't just mean like in a, you know, monastery, like go off and become a monk and figure it out. But I think we're so busy running away from ourselves, right? So when we're alone, we blast music, we 
constantly trying to stimulate ourselves. We're on social media. We're doing all these things to distract ourselves from ourselves. And it's like you need to figure out like spending time with yourself and just thinking and, you know, being like, actually, I'm not an awful person to spend time with. I'm a pretty chilled, cool human being. And I think when you start spending time with yourself, it starts becoming a bit clearer because it's like, what lights me up? Like, what am I drawn to? What do I enjoy speaking about? Like, what do I enjoy, you know, when someone texts me about this thing, it just makes me so happy, you know, and I'm not a believer in like, you have to make your, you know, um, passion a business, you know, you have to do these things or, but I do think that you do need to at least know what you're passionate about, you know, if it's music, if it's art, if it's just being outside, if it's your dog, if it's your cat, if, you know, whatever it is, animals, or you know what I'm saying? But that can only come honestly from spending time with yourself, at least in my experience. You know, it's being able to be in quiet, like in a quiet state without, you know, without judging yourself, without being like, oh my God, this is a thought, therefore I am my thought, you know. Being able to be like, no, that's just another thought. And, you know, just processing that, okay, so why am I feeling this way? What, oh, what about this makes me happy? And really getting to know yourself a lot better than, because I think a lot of people don't know themselves you know, because they don't want to spend time with themselves. They don't want to take that bit of a break from the noise and say, hmm, why am I feeling like this? Because I think sometimes we'll like, especially let's say with rage, right, or anger, you'll say, I'm angry at this person for doing this. But if you actually say, actually, why am I angry? You're angry at something else. You know, it's just that this became a catalyst for you to express that rage or anger. Same thing with passion or things that light you up. You know, when you when you're in a state of happiness, be like, actually, what is making me happy? Why am I experiencing this, you know, elation and happiness? And sometimes it'll be like spending time with family really brings that out in me. Well, sometimes it's like spending time with family does not bring that out in me. You know, so preach. <laughs> you know, so I hate Christmas for that one reason. Oh, I got lots of hands going up in here. <laughs> But it is, it's, you know, it's just mm. those moments and really paying attention to your own emotional body and saying, mm. this makes me feel great. This doesn't make me feel great. And moving and navigating your way. And you do that again and you're like, mm. oh, it still makes me feel great. It mm. wasn't a fluke, you know, so then you start building on those moments and emotions mm. and feelings. Yeah. Well, and I suppose what you're saying is have experiences, right? Put yourself in situations where, you know, you haven't done that shit before because how do you know? Until yeah. you've actually experienced something. I want to touch on, I had Peter Sage on um, the show probably th two, three weeks ago. So he was in prison for like six months for like some misdemeanor thing anyway. But he, you know, spent 15 years with Tony Robbins and he had this massive coaching business and whatever. And he wrote this book and he's transforming prison systems all around the world and what have you. And, I, and he said something right at the end of the show. And I've been trying to like get through it in my own head and I want to kind of discuss it with you and maybe I can, we can do it together. But basically he said, working on yourself is a waste of time. He said, the only thing that matters is making a difference and contributing because that's actually where you'll discover things like passion and uh, growth and kind of these spiritual principles that are applicable to you and your modus operandi. And when he said that, I was like, fuck, that's really interesting because it goes completely opposite to the program of recovery to so many doctrines out there where it's like, well, you've got to find your passion. You've got to come from within and whatever. Do you know what I mean? It was quite an interesting thing. It was like, so, so is working on yourself a waste of time? Mm. And that's it, yeah. such a debatable point, but he was yeah. like adamant about that shit. Cause he yeah. was like, I am this guy. And when I said to him, what's your why, why do you do what you do? He like, remember that he like launched into the most clear pronounced, like incredible 
this is who I am. Mm. And it was all about contribution. Like I am an, a secret agent of change. And it's like, I'm going to change like, blah, blah, like proper, yeah. proper heavy stuff, yeah. like positive stuff, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, it was really interesting for me. Mm. So we're talking wow. about forgiveness, which is a very, very, very personal, personal thing, yeah. and, you know, something he has to come from you. Yeah. What do you say to that? You know, I, you know, the one thing that this industry has taught me, which is the speaking industry or even the self-help industry or, you know, even Tony Robbins, you know, is there is no one size fits all, you know. So, I mean, it's very bold and, I mean, beautiful that, you know, he stands so firmly on his convictions that it is about service to others. And I think service to others is a huge contributor. But I think I work in a field where almost everyone is of service to others. But I spend one-on-one time with those people and they're not of service to themselves. And it's like, if you're not, like you can't fix the world without if you can't fix the world within, you know? And sometimes we get so, um, we dive into all these social causes because we're running away from ourselves. And it's like, we can't find happiness within our own homes. So we run out and we try and be of as much value to the world as possible. So it's like, okay, so that person validates me and that person validates me. So I'm a good person my life is okay like I'm doing all these great things and I think it is important to do great things but I think it's also important to realize that you are important you know and if you are serving people from a place of lack or from a place of wounding and from a place of hurt you are doing yourself a disservice and you're doing them a disservice you know and I've heard this philosophy before, funny enough, about like, just be of service to others and you will never, you know, be sad again. And I'm like, no, um, I've done service for others and I've been incredibly sad when I got home, you know. And it's like, because you almost live in this dual reality. One aspect of you is this incredible celebrated person who is like, the whole world is like, wow, Mother Teresa. And then you go back behind closed doors and you don't love yourself. You're not happy with yourself. You're not content with your life. You're maybe not finding love. You know, there's all these things going wrong and you're like but if i'm so incredible then why is everything else about me not incredible you know why is the rest of my life falling apart so i think you know it's very difficult for me to agree with the point that it's just one way i think it's a combination of both things you know because you can't it's very difficult to say discover your passion and just be a monk you know because if your resilience is never tested and you are never in human because i mean living is challenging human beings are challenging and so if you never come into contact with other human beings how do you know you're peaceful you know it's very easy to be peaceful when i'm removed from everyone i'm like i'm a great person i'm amazing and then like i'll come into contact with someone and i'm like am i as good as i think i am is prison really not for me you know so it's like you do it you have to challenge your own perspective and by doing that you do have you need the balance of both you need the isolation of saying that's what I'm working on. This is my wounding and this is what I'm giving and this is what I'm receiving in return. Mm. I love that doctrine of um, of uh, there's no one size fits all. Yeah. And I, I, that is so important because I don't know, like even in my own life when I was going through, like when I was 26, I went to Monaco, spent 12,500 pounds on a two-week seminar. Yeah. I was run by an Irish dude who was like a like mind power like incredible communicator and whatever but turned out to be like a bit of a cult okay but i didn't realize that at the time because it was like well how can it be i mean you're going to like paradise spending two weeks there and it's like i genuinely came back a different dude you know but positively right and so but where i fucked up was that i took the entire everything that he said as gospel i was like if this is exactly how you're meant to live do you know what I mean? But oh, I was tricky. young and I didn't have any better clue. I had no mentorship, nothing, right? So I was like, well, hey, you just do what you do and you wind up in these certain situations. Yeah. So um, 
and it took a while to work out that there isn't a one size fits all. It's like, so what I learned basically was like, whatever it is, if it's Pitch to Win yeah. by Justin Cohen, yeah. if it's uh, Grit, Guts and Glory, you know, any game principles for high impact entrepreneurs, mm. or whether, whatever the fuck it is, if it's the Bible, for instance, yeah. you know, and I'm using that as a very loose example now, but yeah. take what works for you and leave the rest. Because you Absolutely. are unique. There is no one size fits all. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if there's seven steps in pitching, making the perfect pitch, take number three and five. Yeah. Make it your own. Do you know what I mean? You are like, you are so on the money. And I think even being in this industry, I think the one thing I've had to challenge even about myself and, you know, a lot of speakers, not Justin, um, but a lot of other speakers I've spoken to were like, no, you've got to, you know, you've got to develop a formula and this formula will make you great amounts of money. And I was like, but I don't want to lie to people. I'm like, just because it worked for me and this is the process I took does not mean it's going to work for everyone. And ironically, the one thing that both helped me and almost messed me up was the law of attraction, right? So I think I was around 16. Yeah, it was around the time I was discovering myself, right? So it was about 15, 16, and I was trying to figure this thing out. And I was like, the mind is all powerful and almighty. And so I was like on this journey, and I was like, I've got to be happy all the time. So the, or, or I've got to watch my thoughts. Oh, my thoughts are everything. If I'm yeah. not happy and enthusiastic, I'm gonna die miserable. So like that. So that became my path, right? And I'm I was I'm very much that kind of person. Like I want to entertain an idea and give it my all before rejecting it. So I went onto this thing of like I will wake up, I will meditate, I will tell myself how amazing I am, and I'll walk into the world, and the world will show me how amazing I am because I'm attracting it. Mm. And so when I wasn't attracting great things, I was like, what am I not attracting? <laughs> it's It's not working for me the universe hates me (laughs) like and you can't even say that so you can't even have authentic emotions because when you feel down you're like i can't feel sad i'm so happy (laughs) 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 so i started having like this weird paradigm that i was living in where outside i'm like i'm happy i'm always happy the universe works in my favor and inside i'm like but does it though (laughs) no and that's the thing so i like you know, so it actually made me almost because I've suffered. I was diagnosed with depression when I was around sixteen, and for me, I didn't take medication for it. So I had to, you know, figure this thing out. And so I was like, okay, mind power has to be the thing because it's happening in my mind. Therefore, it's got to be fixed in my mind. And so it actually led me into a deeper depression because it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't work for me the way it was working for everyone else. And they're like, you know, I, I manifested a parking, you know, next to the shop. And I'm like, I can barely manifest parking like 10 rows away from the shop. <laughs> and I was like, and I left the house thinking my parking would be there. And so you start really like questioning yourself. Am I not enough? Am I not doing enough? Mm-hmm. So the one thing it brought to my attention is, yes, your thoughts are powerful. You know, what you think about yourself is powerful and you've got to really change the narrative in your mind. Mm-hmm. But then I had to throw everything else away because I was like, this is not a practical solution to life because they're saying like, you know, you wake up in a shack. It's hot as hell. You know, you've got one bed. Uh, that's a kitchen. That's a bathroom. That's everything. And, you know, you seeing poverty around you and you have to have this abundance mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's already difficult enough being an anomaly in that environment, for example, like, you know, the fact that maybe you're the only employed person in your community, but now having to be like, I'm going to attract a Bentley, you know, it's like, where do you even begin with a Bentley? You, you know, like you've Wouldn't never, seen, great? <laughs> right. Yeah. You've never seen someone drive a Bentley in your, like you've seen them, but you've never in your immediate environment, you've never seen a Bentley. And now that's what you want to attract. Mm. So it will mess you up, you know? And I think with any philosophy, with any school of thought, it's like, I think the one thing I loved about the Buddhist philosophy was 
the mind has to be able to, you know, entertain an idea uh, without accepting it as its own. Mm. You know, so you can entertain it and be like, oh, I can see why that worked for you and I'm happy it did, but it doesn't work for me. Mm. And without people taking it personally, like my philosophy is like mm. the Alpha and Omega. Of mm. I'm like, listen, there are enough religions in the world, mm -hmm. you know, and we've all known that. If religion, if like, if there was one philosophy, all of us would worship the same, you know, mm -hmm. and we'd all go to the same school or like place of thinking. But it's just not that way. Mm. The point is that you have to be curious Absolutely. to explore it, right? So there was a guy, um, there's a guy called Wim Hof, I don't know whether you've heard mm -hmm. of him. So he's a Dutch dude who's <clears throat> called the Iceman. So he literally, he climbed Mount Everest in shorts. Okay. No, this is like a legit dude, wow. right? He um, spent one hour, 44 minutes, broken all kinds of records in freezing temperatures. One hour, 44 minutes in like the Antarctic ice water, right? Where there's core body temperature not dropping. Like he's done some stuff that's just baffling scientists. And um, so anyway, so I got in touch, I got in, in, on to this chap through Russell Brand's podcast and so, um, so he's very much about breathing and he does this thing called hypertension and power breathing, which I started to do. So you can hold your breath for like literally three or four minutes, which is pretty cool where your brain goes from that point, which is quite rad. And it's all about activ activating parts of the brain, which are numb wow. because you, <clears throat> you know, if you take warm showers every day, you've got 120,000 kilometers of capillaries in your, in your, in your body. And so the biggest cause of death in the world is um, heart disease, right? Which is a vascular thing. And so, or heart attacks and what have you. So he's saying, well, if you put yourself into freezing cold water or an ice bath or what have you, or just have a cold shower every day, um, that you activate parts of the body which are never activated. And as a result of that, you can fight disease. And he's now, he, there was um, one particular study that, um, that they did. He took him and 16 other people, normal people, and he took them through his kind of way of his, his own doctrine, right? Yeah. The Wim Hof method, it's called. Yeah. Um, and they injected all of them with a strand of, E. coli, I think it was, or something like that. And they put them and they monitored them, all of them. Prior to this, there were 64,000 people were tested for, for resistance for different reasons and so forth. And they all failed. And all 16 of these people demonstrated uh, a, a way to fight this disease, which was injected into them under environment and controlled conditions, just through breathing, wow. which is crazy, right? Because you think, well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, so I started doing this stuff, right? And then I was like, fuck, do I really want to jump into an ice bath? Is that really something that I see myself doing on a daily basis? Like I get it if you're a performance, a high performance athlete, you know what I mean? And you're getting smashed in a rugby match or if you're an NHL player or what have you, or if you're like an entrepreneur like me and you know I'm saying, but, uh, <laughs> but whatever it is, it's like, it's like, is that really something that I see myself doing? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But now you could say, well, you know, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go fuck the cold thing because, hey, I just don't take yeah. cold, yeah. right, unless I'm snowboarding. But I'm going to take the breathing thing because you know mm -hmm. what? That actually makes me feel good. That's it. You know what I mean? Or it's I'm balance. able to, like, it's right? crazy. Yeah, balance, exactly. Because yeah. that's actually a big part of being happy because you mm -hmm. find, like, you get drawn. Like, life, as you say, life brings you into certain situations. Like, I haven't gone to gym for, like, two months just because the business is sucked me into it yeah. you know what i mean and yeah. to be okay with that yeah. is one thing but also to go back to something that it, it resembles balance mm. you know whatever you define that being 
Absolutely. And being flexible with yourself, right? Like giving yourself permission to be like, actually something else has required more of my attention and doesn't mean I'm less disciplined. And, you know, I think who is this um, speaker? Um, but he's pretty much like, yeah, you've got to follow a routine all the time. And if you fail on your routine, you failed as a human being. And it's like, uh, okay, listen, um, <laughs> first that's of all, that's heavy. very personal. Um, but yeah, so it's like, you know, like even the breathing and the shower like thing, because I know for me, even the shower technique where I've read in other books that, you know, if you just, you can take your normal shower and then just, you know, for a minute, just switch off the hot water and you'll feel energized. And I really do. Mm. I just don't enjoy it. Like I'll feel great, but it will just feel awful. It sucks. Oh my God, I'm getting hypotonia. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, after like, you know, my mindset all down, I'm like, oh, that was great. Mm. But I'm like, I don't want to do that. When you're in it, it sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, isn't that like German, everything else, right? It's just got to be like something that fits with your brain chemistry and what works Mm -hmm. for you. Because I've seen people like with diets, right? Diets are probably one of the biggest things that we can measure ourselves on where some people will work on one diet, but they'll completely fall off another one, you know, because it's just about what works with you. What, mm. like, what can you maintain physically? Because there's no point being hungry and miserable. Because I know about you, but damn, like, if I'm hungry, which is like a lot, um, I'm miserable. Like, so I always have to have food. Like, mm. I will have a snack bar, I will have something, but, you know, and some people are pretty okay with being hungry. Mm. They're like, but I look cute though. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'd rather not look cute and be very well fed. Mm. <laughs> you know, like call me a pork chop. <laughs> I'm fine. You know. Like, that's the episode. <laughs> the, that's the name of this episode. <laughs> pork chop. Inside pork chops. <laughs> <laughs> the life of a pork chop. Walking, living and breathing amongst us. Um, <laughs> but that's really it, right? Giving yourself uh-huh. the balance that you need mm. to be able to live an effective life. Because... It's almost like marriage as well, right? Um, a friend of mine's getting married. She's engaged. And she was just telling me, like, you know, they were doing all these things, these routines that people were expecting them to do because it's like, you're engaged now. You cannot live like, you know, the heathens. You've got to be like, you know, act right. And they like, they followed all these routines and they were like, I can't stand you now, you know? And so they had to like sit together and be like, but this was never our relationship. This doesn't work for us. This is what works for us, you know? And it's not traditional. It's not what everyone else does, but it works for us. And I think that's with life. You need to figure out what works for you, not what works for everyone, you know? Speaking of what uh, works for you, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? I mean, I get the story, right? But there must be more to it. So what gets you out of bed in the morning? food no i'm kidding yeah. <laughs> but food is a big one but um <laughs> <laughs> maverick said the same thing the other day i was like would you like a one week all expenses paid trip to mauritius he was like no i said what do you want then he goes food, food. <laughs> like you and i same wavelength you know the greatest people think alike um <laughs> no but i think on a more serious note um for me you know as much as sometimes people would look at what i do as like um you know, I'm giving of myself and I'm being this incredible human being who's doing all these things. But for me, it's truly like it fills me up. Like it is, it's a very balanced exchange for me, you know, being able to firstly let people listen to what I have to say. I mean, for me, that's a blessing that people want to hear my voice and they want to hear what I've got to say. And then also getting the response back. I mean, that fills me up so much. That makes me happier than I can't stay. Like it's so fulfilling to know that you just, help someone think differently you know so for me it's just become almost an addiction to 
try and help as many people think differently about their story, their narrative, where they are in life as possible. So that gets me out of bed, just trying to spread the message of you aren't your story. You aren't that single narrative that you've married, you know, like you are multiple different things and you can achieve incredible things. But this does not have to be, you don't have to walk through the world saying, I am, you know, so-and-so and I'm a victim. No, you are triumphant. That thing didn't break you. That thing that you thought was going to break you, it didn't break you. You're still here. You know, you're still kicking ass. You're still an amazing human being. So for me, it's just a really amazing, you know, exchange of energy. So, I mean, I can't see myself doing anything outside of the human relations field um, because it does. It fills me up so much. Yeah. Candice, Mama, everyone, thanks for being Aww, on the show. Yeah. Thank you. This edition of the Map Round Show is brought to you by networkspace.co.za. In fact, our studios are here in building number four at Network Space up in Johannesburg. These guys have made us a huge deal, have really bent over backwards to give us the kind of service that most exciting businesses deserve. If you want more information about Network Space, you can actually come and check out our studio. We are always open to meet new entrepreneurs and business owners from around the country, and you can do that right here at networkspace.coza. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.